Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. You're welcome to show number 924, brought to you this week in association with Code for Ethics, which is taking place in Trinity College on the 1st of July. You can find out more about that at codeforethics.org. And we also have for you, my friend listening right now today, some free tickets to uh, enter the event uh, with our compliments. Uh, we have a little competition lined up for the end of the show and details, of course, in the show notes right now. As always, I'm joined by our Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, I suppose we should we should mourn the passing, or should we, of the, of the humble Internet Explorer. Well, I mean, Internet Explorer, when it comes to the Internet, it's, a, it's all our first love, really, isn't it? It's no. the first browser we got used to. No, never liked it. No? No, I was always Never uh, liked <clears throat> well. No, maybe maybe that's a little bit unfair, but th- th- Netflix was it, or not Netflix? Uh, Netscape. <laughs> that's mm, how long okay. it's been. Netscape. Well, you've was... got a few years on me, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'll accept that. All right, Netscape was it, and then I think Internet Explorer came along, and then that was it for a while, and then uh, and then of course Google Chrome came along, and then boom. Yeah, or or in the middle, I was using uh, Firefox because uh, yes. I had switched to a Mac and I didn't really like Safari. And my brother said, Control T, it will change your life. (laughs) (laughs) What's this tab magic you talk of? What is this tab magic? (laughs) Even though Firefox wasn't the first to do it. I think Opera was. Mm. But uh, yeah, tabs. And then with Internet Explorer 7, Microsoft introduced tabs. And I will always remember the... um, uh, presentation I was given about it. There was a bunch of journalists brought into a hotel room and we were shown what a browser can do. I mean, the love of God. And um, uh, it didn't work. The browser kept freezing. <laughs> well, these things did happen at Microsoft presentations back in the day, didn't it? Like, you know, so. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's funny how things have developed because when Chrome came out first, it was all about how light it was. Mm, you know, and yeah. it didn't hog your system resources, whereas now it's exactly the opposite. It's, yeah, that's why I've never, la- I like, I use Chrome because I have to for mm. some applications. Uh, but Firefox is, is my go-to because I find it, uh, because it's less popular than it was, there's actually more development has been going into it. And I'm finding more features are starting to appear in Firefox and then filtering down into Chrome and then into into Edge now, mm. which is based on Chromium. It's the same engine. Uh, so uh, I've always stuck with Firefox. I'm going to stick with it into the future. I just find it's the most innovative. It's it's pretty light. It doesn't get in the way. And uh, the you know various ad blockers and that sort of thing are, are pretty unobtrusive. They're they're okay. So I don't know. What are you using at the moment, Dusty? Uh, I use Chrome or Edge. Um... Essentially, either one, whichever kind of comes to uh, to hand first. Uh, Chrome, probably more. Mm, okay. More so. Um, I was going to ask you about uh, Internet Explorer. Is anybody still using it? I'm sure there are some legacy applications mm. that will only work in, in Internet. That's usually the way. Like software doesn't die off. 
because there's usually somebody somewhere has a need for it. And more, I'm thinking on the corporate side of things, because, you know, corporations can be very fussy about what applications are installed in there. Uh, And I would imagine there are quite a number of companies around the world, maybe not so much in in Europe or the States, uh, but in other places around the world uh, where Internet Explorer went in with their machines 10, 15 years ago and they're still using those computers and they haven't allowed Chrome to be installed. But anyway, I think according to Microsoft, it's something like less than 1% of people use Explorer. So, Okay. So we're really talking about people that haven't bothered updating their computers in at least 10 years. There you go. Now, listen, one man who has definitely updated his computer, uh, I'd say probably in the last week because he has the money to do it, Elon Musk. Elon Musk is in the news for a couple of reasons because he was talking to um, a conference of extremely wealthy people, uh, the Qatar Economic Forum during the week. And he was asked about, you know, where do you where do you think things are going in the world and all this sort of thing. And he made a very interesting comment about cryptocurrency. Oh, uh, here we because, go. Yeah, yeah. Because we know crypto is going through a very tough time. And in a couple of weeks, we've got somebody really interesting that's going to explain it all. Um, so, you know, stick with us for a few weeks and we'll, we'll do a deep dive on it. But um, Elon Musk came out and basically said, crypto? Mm, no, don't know the guy. Don't know the guy. Never met him. <laughs> Uh, I'm being facetious, but uh, a lot of people invested in cryptocurrency off the back of Elon Musk's um, uh, endorsement of it. Um, Dogecoin is is his jam, and uh, Tesla keep uh, keep some assets in crypto as well in uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, so. Now that we're we're going through this crash with crypto at the moment, uh, and as being one of the the faces of the crypto movement on Web three in general, which is also something we'll be talking about in the in the next couple of weeks, uh, he basically came out and said, "You know what? I didn't actually tell people to invest in crypto. I just said it was cool. That's it. That's it. If you lost your money on crypto, well, sucks to be you. I didn't tell you to invest in it." That's quite interesting because that seems to be what uh, Elon does. He goes, oh, crypto is rubbish. And then the price collapses. And then he goes, oh, I've just bought 10 billions worth. And then everybody goes, oh, my God, quick, buy it. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of is- funny. It's like Elon is being, he's like the Pied Piper being followed around by all the children of the world, isn't he? That's that's a really good analogy. Uh, he's also in trouble uh, with... Um, Tesla, well, uh, trouble, inverted commas. I mean, he's been in trouble with Tesla uh, shareholders because of his interest in Twitter. Um, People are wondering, okay, can he do Twitter, SpaceX and Tesla at the same time? Uh, No, is the common sense answer. But uh, he's he's keeping his his two gigs. Um, He's staying uh, with Tesla and Tesla developed, you remember what they call these gigafactories, these giant factories for producing Tesla cars. Um, But Musk has had to come out and say, do you know what? The output is tiny. These things are burning money on me. Uh, They're they're just, they're not, they're not uh, profitable at all right now. And the reason for it is the supply chain crisis. Um, They've got a bunch of components uh, sitting in China uh, for the batteries for Tesla cars that they can't actually get to the factories. So they're really suffering from uh, from the supply chain crisis. They're losing an awful lot of money over it. So, and I, you know, this is COVID-19 related as well, because as we know, China has been very, um, very aggressive in its COVID-19 measures. So if, any, if nothing is happening in China, well, nothing is going to happen for Tesla, which makes one wonder, seeing as Elon Musk has been 
I'm not going to say anti-vax, but he's been very much on the, you know, let's get these sort of restrictions out of the way and go back to living as quickly as possible uh, side of the fence. So it makes you wonder, like, was he foreseeing that the supply chain crisis would be so bad that he has to lobby in public for the removal of COVID-19 restrictions just so he can go back to making a whole ton of money? No, I don't think so, because nobody can predict the future. Oh, oh, I have. (laughs) That sounds like, oh, but yes, they can. (laughs) Oh, but sir, um, do you remember the movie The Big Short? I do, yes. Yeah. Michael, Michael Burry, was it was, it was yeah. lots of fella, yeah. Uh, and um, Christian Bale's character in it. Yes. Uh, I think he played Michael Burry, didn't that's he? A, that's what I'm thinking of, yes. He knew, he saw it, he read the numbers, he saw what was coming. Uh, he invested in, in uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, or rather bet that they would fail, made a ton of money off them in the longer term. Uh, and the scary thing is, you know, the man who predicted the future once, his current, uh, his current investment hobby horse? Go on. Water. 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 I've heard that before. Water and yeah. education. Online education are the two things that are going to grow uh, enormously. Yeah. And I believe it. I mean, look at the look at the the row that we had here in Ireland a, a couple of years ago when they tried to bring in water charges. Oh you know? yeah, and we're yeah. still this country that thinks ah, water should be free. <laughs> which, yeah, which, but, which you, you know, know what, it's kind of right. But you know, somebody's got to pay true. for the pipes to get it to your to your home. Well, uh, that's and, it. You know, kind of, and as water shortages around the world, and uh, uh, more people here, and uh, and, and, and uh, is this a tech show or an environment show? So. <laughs> Well, let's move on to a story that kind of has an environmental element to it. But is more tech, please. But is more tech. Excellent. Uh, go I, on, go I on. I picked this one because I knew you'd get a kick out of it. Okay, go on. Um, Hit me with the headline. NASA, NASA and a company called Rocket Lab uh, are setting up to do um, uh, a little moon mission, if <gasps> you will, testing a new kind of autonomous guidance system. Ooh, so this is going to be an unmanned mission to the moon. Yep. Uh, NASA are kind of behind it, but a private company is going to do all the work. Yeah. So the mission is called the the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System. Uh, And so-called because there is no uh, fixed tracking assets near the moon. So they're kind of, uh, I don't want to say winging it, but uh, basically because there's nothing for, you know, traditional uh, guidance systems to latch onto. Um, they're sort of following the um, uh, the cislunar environment mm. uh, as it becomes sort of more crowded. The system is going to get better and better uh, over the next few years. But yeah, it's a private company called Rocket Lab. NASA doing some of the heavy lifting with them. And yeah, another example of the private sector getting interested in uh, space exploration and Going to the moon again, which uh, I know is kind of a, a hobby horse of yours that we did it in 1963. Well, why the hell aren't we still now? I think you might find it was 1969. <laughs> there you go. I should have got that right. No, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I think it was... I can't remember whatever that, that year is, is, is indelibly imprinted into my head because I missed it. I think that's probably why. <laughs> 20th of July, 20th of July, 1969, they put a man on the moon and all my life I was kind of like, I wish I was able to see that I wasn't here. It's not fair. So I'm actually quite excited to think that 
the potential for a man to land on the moon before the end of this decade, I think is very strong. And for some reason, I'm thinking in my head that they're actually going to do it by 2025. And when I say putting a man on the moon, if they were clever this time round, the first person to touch the surface will be a woman, because that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Certainly would. It certainly would. To to which, uh, with with a small amount of devilment, uh, I direct you to the second last to last episode of Space Force season one, oh. <laughs> which was quite entertaining. Quite entertaining, boded well for the future. And then they made season two, which was rubbish. Oh, I forgot. I thought season one was rubbish. Well, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> Grand stuff. Listen, there we go. That's all the news for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. The history of software development is as much about the people as it is about the products. Denise Cooper is founder and chairperson of Inner Source Commons, and she has literally seen it all when it comes to the open source movement. She sat down with Nal Kitson to talk about her experience and how she became known as an open source diva. Denise, we come across uh, in the tech sector and particularly people with very unusual job titles, occasionally something with like Ninja uh, in there or Rockstar or something like that. Uh, You eventually happened upon the title of Open Source Diva. Uh, How did that come to be? Well, it was actually given to me by the uh, vice president that was in charge of JavaSoft, John Kanegard. Um, it was it was a thing for Sun people to have uh, interesting titles, as you mentioned. And um, when I started at Sun, my title was Guzzle Goddess, which is SCSL stands for Sun Community Source License Goddess. And um, I think that happened partly because I wore a goddess costume to a early Halloween party at Sun. But um, anyway. It wasn't, the Scuzzle was not an open source license. That was an attempt by Sun to fix open source to its own needs. And um, this is exactly what we try to keep companies from doing because it's not, you know, a lot of companies want the credit for doing open source without actually doing the work. In Sun's case, it was a little more nuanced. Bill Joy, who was the chief scientist, had written the BSD license and had some idea about how to run a community around a technology like Java. And so they were trying to convince the world that they knew more than, you know, the people that were running the open source movement. So I spent about six months having a very hard time because I could see their point. You know, I, I, a good community manager is immediately co-opted by the community, right? And that happened to me. I, I, I had a hard time with the choices Sun was making in the face of the arguments that the open source community was giving me about why it should be different for Java or shouldn't be different. And um, so I actually threatened to quit on ethical grounds. And I, I didn't threaten so much as I went in to tell them I was quitting. And... At the time, there was only half a percent unemployment in Silicon Valley. So I figured I could stand on the sidewalk with my thumb out and probably find another job. Right. Um, And so I told them that, you know, I needed to leave. And what I didn't factor in was that in times of tight hiring like that, 
they can't allow people to leave, not good people. So they asked me the, the sterling question. And if anybody ever asks you this question, you got to think hard. And, but then the answer, aim high when you answer. They said, what would keep you here? <laughs> and I said, well, you guys aren't doing the right things by open source right now. And I know you think that you are and you have good reasons, but the community's not buying it. And I think you need to have friends in that community they seem to like me. They seem to get it that I am hearing them. So how about we make it my job to make friends with those communities on your behalf and, and I'll be myself and I'll agree with them. You know, I won't, won't tow this, the party line because I don't think your party line is, is the right line. And, um, and then when you come around inevitably, cause you're going to have to, you'll have a friend there that can help. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And so that's how I became the chief open source evangelist at Sun. It was a big jump in, in title, and it gave me access to a lot more people to help influence making the right things happen. So um, not too long after that, we did get Sun to start engaging in real open source, for, first for Apache Tomcat. And uh, I was able to change my title. And I went to Canagard and I said, I'm going to change my title. And he said... Okay, well, you you're the open source diva now, and that's how it happened. So well, you alluded to there the difference between true open source uh, and by definition then not true. Well, how do the two uh, differ um, either in your mind or, or how were they seen as being different by the community at the time? Well, you know, companies in that era, in the, the very dawn of open source, we're all about getting the marketing halo for doing open source without necessarily changing their plans for commercialization. And um, in the case of Java, the license was what's called a hub and spoke license that forced people to go through Sun to make changes. So they couldn't, as individual members of the Java community, talk directly to each other under the terms of the license. And that was too restrictive from the open source community's point of view. Um, the main reason that Sun justified that was because they had a compatibility problem. Uh, Java had to stay compatible, and so they couldn't afford forks that were going to make it incompatible. Um, and a little bit later in time with Sun, they, they started trusting Apache to do that for some of the Java technologies, but then that agreement broke down around the language when we, when Apache tried to make an open source version of the language, but open source itself to answer your question more directly is really clearly defined. Um, the first cut is it has to be licensed under an OSI approved license. And the scuzzle was not an OSI approved license. There are 10, um, articles in the open source definition that define what is an open source license and Sun failed on two of those points. Um, and so that part is really, really clear. Unfortunately, our early interest in licensing, and I helped run the OSI for 10 years, so I'm you know definitely partly uh, uh, the creator of this problem. Um, our emphasis on, on licensing allowed people to think that just slapping a license on a piece of code was enough to make it open source. Um, it is by the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is that you're building collaborative communities. And you can only do that if you're also providing a level playing field, um, you know, uh, treating new contributors as um, 
valued members of the community and, and um, able to, you know, rise to any heights within the hierarchy of the project through their direct actions. And Sun was also not prepared to do that at the time. So that represented a, a, a massive cultural shift as sort of the corporate world found itself uh, obliged to uh, embrace sort of grassroots developers. How long a project, how long uh, a process did that take? Is it, or is it something you still find to be problematic uh, at the moment where you have large companies sort of uh, withholding information or, or treating more technologies as proprietary than they need to? Well, it's still happening. It's absolutely still happening. It took 15 years for us to get critical mass. Um, and it, so from the time that we started talking about open source in 1999 until we could really declare victory in 2014, right? What ha many, many things had to change. So the company that was most severely in the crosshairs of the open source movement wasn't actually Sun. Um, it was Microsoft. And Microsoft's uh, selling executables so that the code is not visible um, allowed them to do all kinds of things that weren't in the customer's best interest and definitely weren't um, pleasing to developer communities. So there were bugs in the products that everybody had to use because Microsoft had 98% install base. So even if you refused to use Microsoft products on your own computer, if you were going to share a document with somebody else, you had to you know go there. Right. Um, there were bugs in their software that they were not fixing until it made capitalistic sense to do so. So they weren't responding to a desire to create a more secure um, computing environment or to the you know, pain and suffering of their customers. The only thing that moved them was the moment in time that their capitalization of effort was um bearing enough fruit that they could afford to spend more resources on that project. And that that's kind of the anti open source ethic in a, in a nutshell, you know, squeeze, squeeze your work so hard that you wring every penny out of it and don't do anything to make the software better until you're done squeezing. Um, and open source is about focusing on the security, the quality, the, the making the software as good as it can possibly be on the theory that, um, you know, more people will be more interested in that better level of quality and, and better level of reliability, despite the fact that the software is being written by, you know, unwashed hippies is the, is the uh, model that Microsoft was trying to, you know, promulgate at the time. So anyway, in 2014, Microsoft finally capitulated. Um, Satya Nadella became the new CEO and came out and said, uh, we love open source. We couldn't do Azure without it. We're going to make a big bet in open source going forward. And, um, and it's not an easy thing to turn a battleship the size of Microsoft, but they're getting there. They're definitely getting there. Of course, uh, open and closed source, uh, they're two terms that we're very familiar with at the moment, but there is a, a kind of a new middle space in between that you're quite uh, quite involved with, quite a proponent of, which is inner source. So tell us a little bit about what the term means. Sure. Um, the term inner source was coined by Tim O'Reilly in 2000. Tim was serving on the board of a company called CollabNet, and he coined it to explain how what CollabNet was offering was different than pure open source. So CollabNet was a company that would, for a fee, 
teach you how to do open source. But they would also teach you how to do inner source, and that's really what they were trying to sell. Inner source is using open source methods, but inside of a defined space or a firewall. And so companies that want to make their development process more efficient are, you know, looking at these open source methods that have created this horizontal layer of software that's basically um, uh, the industry is now dependent on um, to see if they can't use some of those same methods to fix problems in their old school engineering work work chain. And um, so that's what InterSource does. And people do it for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they do it, again, because they notice that it's a better way to build software. Um, but they also do it because they have problems within their culture inside their, their organization. For instance, a lot of companies do it to increase innovation because it's changing the pattern of how you develop software. And it, within that change, there's room for innovation for the first time. So another reason people do it is because they've got they they realize that the the workforce they can hire now, you know, new college grads have grown up with more agency thanks to the internet than their parents or their grandparents and they expect that in their workplace and InterSource gives them more agency, gives developers more agency generally. Um, so that's what InterSource is. Um, we're seeing it being used for and by a, a really broad array of companies. Um, we have about almost 100 companies that are willing to talk about their InterSource journey and several hundred more that are involved in, in it. Um, some of us get involved in consulting to companies, but there's plenty of information available at InterSourceCommons.org. If anybody's curious about this, um, definitely a, a hot trend and how I can tell is because all the fintech companies are, are all over this right now and they are the ones who actually made Linux popular by creating supercomputers for their trading floor software out of one U boxes running x86 hardware and and Linux instead of spark hardware and Solaris which was very expensive at the time um, so anyway that's intersource uh, possibly the project you're most famous for at the moment, and, and please stop me if, if I'm incorrect on this, uh, is the development of the Irish COVID-19 app, which has since gone on to be a, a global standard uh, for um, sort of mobile applications and ease of use. Uh, tell us a little bit about the process, because uh, I know you're near form VP of special initiatives, and that seems like a, a job tailor made for this kind of project. Yeah, well, it was. Um, to be clear, I don't work for Nearform anymore. I started my own company. Um, you're probably familiar with the way that the visas work in this country. And my work visa was a critical skills visa that Nearform sponsored. And so at the end of two years of employment, you have the option to convert to what's called a stamp four visa that gives you a little more autonomy. And among other things, allows you to start, start your own company, which I wanted to do from the very beginning, but um, I was persuaded that a couple of years at Nearform would, would do me well. So anyway, I ended up being there for two and a half years. And part of that was because of the COVID tracing app. So I got a call from the HSE um, asking me if I thought Nearform could pull off the creation of a uh, COVID tracing app. And um, it was really, really fortuitous for Nearform because the pandemic had created a lot of uncertainty and consulting companies were not exactly um, seeing a rock solid ongoing 
uh, contracts. You know, every, everybody was sort of a little wait and see about spending money. Um, so it was a great opportunity, but also as an Irish company, we were very interested in contributing to the solution of this, you know, horrible global pandemic. And, um, we were lucky in our timing. There had been a couple other efforts that came before us that made some missteps and we were able to sort of track that. Um, there was a lot of sharing of information across the world of tech about what didn't work, what, what, what might work better. But we had a couple of other lucky breaks. Um, one of them was that I used to work for Apple. Apple and Google were of course, um, a big part of making that all work by adding or in increasing the rights that you get as an, as a developer, um, developing for a phone platform. There was stuff we could do on the Android platform that we could not do on the Apple platform. And because Apple was 35% of the installed base of phones in Ireland, we really wanted to get at that group of people because you need critical mass for a contact tracing app to do its job. So, um, because I used to be an Apple employee, I was able to, you know, sort of have conversations you wouldn't otherwise have, um, because I knew people inside and I figured out who was working on what, and I was able to, um, point out that Ireland was making real strides towards what could become the most used app. If, um, we could get involved in the conversation about this increase of rights, um, which, is now called the exposure notification um, set of set of capabilities, uh, which, by the way, when the pandemic is over, Apple plans to turn those off again um, for the regular developer because they do represent a bit further breach into privacy rights. Although we wrote an application that is so so GDPR compliant that we don't actually breach anybody's rights. And um, one of the things that was really great about writing that app. They knew ahead of time, the HSE, that it was going to need to be, the code was going to need to be published so that privacy experts that were giving them a hard time would see that it was written with privacy in mind. And um, we did that and it was, you know, it worked just like it was supposed to. They all read the code. They all said, oh my God, you actually did it. And then when we made it available to the public, they were willing to say, we have looked at this and it is not going to uh, in any way damage your privacy rights to use this, right? So that was pretty cool. But um, then what happened next was we decided to open source, Nearform decided to open source the actual source code. So it wasn't just publishing it, but actually making it possible for people to contribute to the code base. The Linux Foundation Public Health Initiative was just spinning up and they were looking for landmark software that would be of interest in the public health space. And um, COVID Green is was our code base published at Linux Foundation. Uh, and almost immediately we got interest from other countries that were developing their own code bases to do the same thing, but weren't as far along as we were, or maybe weren't subject to GDPR, but they really liked the way that we, you know, threaded that needle, right? And so we started getting, um, different countries that wanted to add or create improvements or change things for their own, for their own use, add features. Mostly they didn't change the engine or the way that the data was handled. But, um, so pretty soon, you know, we become the code base around COVID tracing that is the most used. 
And a little bit later, Apple and Google came out with a free service that was going to save you from needing to have an app. Um, but it was not very widely adopted because um, our app had additional features that the, the Irish public appreciated and many of the other um, entities that use our code base appreciated as well. So, yeah, that was a good little project. It was my last project at, at uh, Nearform. Uh, you're going to be one of the main speakers at the Code for Ethics conference coming up in Trinity College. Do you think the COVID-19 app was a, a particularly a successful example of designing with a, an ethical mindset? Uh, or do you think there's still an awful lot of work to be done out there to come up with sort of a, a best case example of how something can, can be built with privacy in mind in an ethical way that will manage user data? Has Is that still out there? Or can you look to the COVID app and go, do you know what, we've tried it and it works? Well, I think we can say that um, the, what, the problem there initially was that epidemiological history, you know, several hundred years of people stopping um, pandemics and epidemics with data, uh, starting with the cholera outbreak in London that was traced back to a, a water that was sucking up from the Thames in, you know, a pump in the middle of a square, right? Um, using data to figure out where the center of the problem is was a really well-worn path, but it required knowledge of individual identities. And that is, of course, not something that GDPR can allow. And so... Um, truthfully, we came to the design through a lot of iteration and a lot of conversation, getting Ireland involved in the conversation with Apple at the level we were involved with them allowed a lot of um, high level modeling of how to solve the problem another way. And um, so what we came up with was never knowing um, who anybody was. We didn't need to because everybody carries around a phone so the phone had all the data that you were producing. And if someone that you were close to um, came down with COVID and, and were convinced to upload the keys of people that they'd been near to, those were encrypted keys. Nobody could read who those people were or work backwards to them. But the servers sent out that, that set of keys to every single phone in Ireland that, that had the app. And those phones made the match behind an, a mask of encryption as well. So if you if your phone told you that you'd had a close contact, that's how it happened. And, it, and only your phone and you knew that that was happening. And it asked you to call the HSE and get some advice. Only when you called them and identified yourself as a patient under their strict rules for GDPR, would you be exposed to anyone? So, you know, it's pretty great hack, actually. And I think that that it proves that you can get real work done without having identity information about an individual node of the of the network. And that was Denise Cooper talking to Niall Kitchen. Denise is going to be one of the keynote speakers at Code for Ethics, which is taking place in Trinity College on the 1st of July. For more information on that, you can visit codeforethics.org. We also have 10 free tickets to the first 10 listeners to email us at info at mediateam.ie with the subject line Code for Ethics. And you're in with our compliments.
That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie and of course you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, for myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, as always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.